0: Section Fifteen of Trees Every Child Should Know by Julia Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Why trees need leaves. Spring or early summer is the best time to study the leaves of trees. They are clean and fresh and new. Every tree is a great mound of green. The broad-leaved trees seem to be thatched or shingled with overlapping blades, so that no sunlight can get into the darkened room which is empty except for the bare branches that support this outer dome of leaves. A sugar maple or a linden tree shows best this outer thatch, which is so thick that the sun is unable to look through. The bird flying overhead sees only a mass of leaves. The one on its nest, in a forked limb, looks up and sees the inside of this leafy tree-cover. She is glad for the twilight that surrounds her, and for the coolness of this shady place, but more glad that her nest is hidden from the sight of hawks that sail overhead, while she keeps a close watch for sly, thieving red squirrels that may come and steal her eggs by climbing up the branches. What are the leaves for? Why does the tree put out in spring young shoots with rows of leaves along their sides? Why does the tree hold these branches out as far as possible from the trunk and bend the leaf stems and the twigs so as to face the leaf-blades toward the sun? The reason is this. The life of the tree is in the green layer which we see on the surface of all green shoots, and which we can discover under the older bark of twigs which has turned brown. Following the twig back from its tip, all of the leafy part is green. Behind it, the smooth twig is no longer green, but a thumbnail easily strips off the layer of brown and reveals the green under the bark. Go a little further back, and gradually the outer bark thickens, and it is more difficult to get at the soft underlayer. After a little while we shall need a knife to reach it, for old bark is hard and tough. When the bark gets so thick that the sun cannot reach the green layer, the color fades out. The living part of the trunk of the tree is the soft, juicy layer between the bark and the wood. Through this portion of the tree the sap rises from the roots and finally reaches the leaves. The sap needs to be changed before it can be useful to the tree as food. The leaves are the places where these changes take place. Through little doorways in the undersides of the leaf air passes in. With it goes carbonic acid gas, an important food element. The soft green leaf pulp, which is the green juice of a bruised leaf, has wonderful work to do. It cannot do this work unless the sun is shining upon it. On a bright day every leaf is making starch, and sending it down through the twigs and branches as food. This starch is contained in the sugary sap that flows back constantly from the leaves to the farthest root tips. It is made in the leaves, out of the sap brought up from the roots and the carbonic acid gas which the leaves absorb from the air. As long as the leaves do their work, the tree is able to grow, and to blossom, and to ripen its seeds. When the leaves have done their work, the summer has passed. The tree lets go the leaves and rests without growing all winter it is not easy to explain the work of the leaves nor even to understand the wonderful work accomplished there all through the summer when we eat our food must go into the stomach to be changed by the processes called digestion it is hours before the digested food is poured into the blood and carried to all parts of the body the tree takes its food from the air and from the soil neither the dirty water that rises as sap to the leaves nor the gas which enters the leaf doorways from the air, is useful as food to the growing tree until they have been combined and changed. The leaves are, then, in a sense, the stomachs of the trees, for in them the raw foods must be digested, before they are ready to be poured into the life-blood that flows down through all the live parts of the tree. Now they are fit to feed the growing cells, which are always hungry. Leaves of all shapes and sizes, the leaf of the tree is its visiting card. We shall learn to know trees by their leaves, as easily as if their names were written across the face of the leaf. Some leaves have a single blade of green, and for this reason the botanist calls them simple leaves. This blade has a stem that unites it with a twig. A compound leaf is one whose stem bears more than one blade. These small blades are called leaflets. There are two types of compound leaves, one feather-like having a main stem with leaflets arranged in two rows on opposite sides of this stem. Such a leaf is feather-like. The other type has a leaf stem with all the leaflets attached at one end. The horse-chestnut is the best example of this type. The leaves spread from the end of the stalk, somewhat as the fingers rise from the palm of your hand. The biggest leaves, with single blades to be found in our forests, grow on trees of the magnolia family, The silver-lined leaves of the large-leaved cucumber tree are over a foot in length, sometimes two and one-half feet, down south. These great leaves are about one-fourth as wide as long, and at the base each one broadens and extends backward into two round ear-like lobes. This gives the tree the name, Ear-leaved Magnolia. The whole leaf flaps in the wind, like the ear of an elephant, and, of course, the wind lashes it into strings and soon robs it of its beauty. The northern cucumber tree is another magnolia whose leaves are tropical looking. This is the hardiest of the magnolia family, and its heart-shaped leaves are six to ten inches long. They are not large for magnolia of the south, but they look larger because they grow among the small-leaved trees of the northern states. The tulip tree has a large leaf of peculiar form. It is broad like a maple leaf at the base, but at the tip is cut off square as with a pair of shears, forming a right angle with its straight sides. Sometimes the leaf is notched, as if a V-shaped piece were cut out of the square tip. These leaves are long-stemmed, and their blades polished, and they flutter on the twigs with the lightness of a poplar leaf. Once we have in mind the form of the leaf of the tulip tree, we shall never forget it, for it is different from all other leaves. The catalpa tree, which lifts its great blossom clusters above the foliage in late June, is another of the few large-leaved trees of the north. The single blade is heart-shaped, six to eight inches long, and more than half as broad. These leaves usually have plain margins, but sometimes they are wavy and notched near the base so as to produce faint side-lobes. The blades hang on long, stout stems. Among the feather-leaved trees, the walnuts and butternuts, the sumacs, and the alanthus furnish examples. A black walnut leaf is often two feet long, with a dozen or more leaflets on the longest ones these leaflets are always set opposite in pairs, with an odd one at the tip of each leaf stem. Butternut leaves have the same form, but the leaves are longer. They range from fifteen to thirty inches, and have from ten to twenty leaflets, but always an odd number. The peculiar gummy feeling of these hairy leaves, and their pungent butternut odor when bruised, make it easy to know the tree whenever we meet it through the long summer. The hickories are cousins of the walnuts, but their leaves, though of the feather form, have larger and fewer leaflets than any walnut tree. A shagbark hickory leaf has one or two pairs of little leaflets on the stem, and above them three of larger size. The pignut has the same habit of clustering its three largest leaves at the tip of the leaf stem and tapering off at the base with one or two pairs of decreasing size. The largest of all the compound leaves have branched stems to which leaflets are attached. The main leaf stems, side branches, may yet branch again, forming a twice-branched framework that is set with leaflets, not large, but so numerous as to make the whole leaf surprisingly large. The greatest of these twice-compound leaves is borne by the astonishing spiny-stemmed Hercules club. A single leaf is often four feet long and nearly a yard wide. There are no leaflets on the main stem, they are on the side branches. How shall we tell a leaf stem from a twig? Leaf stems do not look like the twigs of the tree. A little practice in looking closely and comparing these leaf stems and twigs will obviate any confusion of the two. The leaf has a bud at its base, and it breaks off easily at this joint. Among the fine, feathery leaves that are so beautiful and light that they give beauty to the tree tops are those of the honey locust. These leaves are of the feather type, the slender stems, with double rows of tiny leaflets. Often we find among the singular feather forms leaves of greater size, which have branched stems. This branching multiplies the number of leaflets, and gives us, on the same tree, what the botanists call once compound and twice compound leaves. The simple feather and the branched feather forms add greatly to the beauty and luxuriance of the foliage of the honey locust. The common black locust of the roadside has single leaf stems, with oblong leaflets set in opposite rows upon it. Ash trees have the same feather type of leaves, the leaflets usually pointed and oval, and always an odd one at the tip. They are all larger than leaves of the locusts. In the maple family there is a broad, simple blade, about as wide as it is long. It is a family trait to have three main veins running out from the end of the leaf stem into the blade. Each of these veins has side branches, and they are connected with a network of smaller veins. Between the tips of these three main veins the leaf is usually notched, so as to divide it into thirds. In the red maple these notches are shallow V's cut out, leaving triangular points. In the silver maple the leaves are cut by deeper clefts, which reach more than half to the leaf stalk. The three lobes are cut with jagged points into an uneven margin. The sugar maple has its three lobes separated by wide, deep clefts, and its margins are irregularly wavy. The box elder, which is a maple, is cleft so deeply that the blade is split into three distinct leaflets, each with its own short stem. This makes a compound leaf of it. It is the only maple with a leaf of more than one blade. The tree which shows the greatest difference in the form of its leaves is the sassafras, whose oval leaves grow on the same stem with mittens and double mittens, a mitten pattern with a thumb on each side. The hawthorns have small oval leaves with variously cleft borders. There are over a hundred kinds of hawthorns in our woods, and each kind has a leaf different from all the rest. Yet a single tree will often show leaves that differ so much from the others in form that we might easily suspect, if someone brought them to us, that each grew on a different tree from all the rest many oaks have the same habit of leaf variation so that even a forester has to examine many leaves with care and with them the buds and the acorns to make sure he has called the oak by its right name the behaviour of the leaves of a tree depend largely on the length and flexibility of their stems if they are long and slender and supple the tree-top is in a continual flutter when the wind blows if they are thick and stiff they do not catch the breeze as readily and their blades lie comparatively still when other trees nearby may be twinkling and trembling. Leaves with deeply cut borders, like some oaks and maples, flutter much more than leaves like the basswood whose borders are unbroken. Oak leaves that are deeply cut will rarely lie down flat. The curving bays in its border cause the leaf to curl, so that no matter what face is presented, the wind gets under and strikes some surface and sets the leaf to dancing. The flat-leaf stems of the trembling aspen, one of the poplar family, are very flexible, and they are flattened at right angles to the blades of the leaves. When a breeze comes by, it may strike the edge of the leaf, but if so, it catches the flat-leaf stem broadside. If it comes from any other direction, the leaf trembles, because one of the blades is sure to receive the force of the wind. So the treetop is in one constant tremor, even when the breeze is scarcely sufficient to disturb broad leaved trees which are near neighbors of the aspens whatever the form and size and shape of its leaf the tree depends upon its foliage mass for all the life it enjoys and for all the growth it makes the soil and the air feed the tree the leaves and the sun do the work of digesting the food in the porous wood and bark are the channels through which sap mounts upward to the leaves and another set of channels which carry the prepared food back leaving it wherever needed along the way from tip of twig to tip of root. Whatever is not needed is stored away, to be dissolved as needed, and carried to the points where the need is. In spring, it is the growing buds that chiefly need this stored food. Its presence explains the miracle of the bursting of blossoms and leaves when spring comes. One by one the trees of your own yard may be learned by name this summer. The leaves are your sure guide. Trees stay where they are, Once we recognize their leaves and call them by name, we may depend upon finding them still standing the next day when we pass them, and their leaves are still held out as a sign of recognition. Every time we pass, yonder red maple let us glance at its three-pointed leaf, and fix its shape indelibly in our mind. When we have done this a dozen times, I am sure that we will be able to pick out all the red maples in town. And if we journey far from home, we may find and recognize the same kind of trees by the same sign. More and more as we grow older, we find out that half the pleasure of traveling is the occasional meeting with old friends, be they people or trees. End of section 15.